Hello again, everyone. You sounded marvelous. So if anyone has ever been here on a morning that I speak, you are um, no stranger to my struggle with technology. It is um, inevitable. But today, I figured I would beat the technology and go by paper. So try to get at me. So this morning, we're going to be turning to Acts 11. And this week, I've really been thinking about things that I really hate. And you know what I really hate? I hate having to defend myself when I know that I am right. You can ask Austin. I realize that sounds pretty vain, but I, I really do have to explain this. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you were given clear directions from a boss or a teacher or someone in leadership, and after you completed the task, you felt like you had to defend yourself, especially to your peers? Or you've been in a place where you've done the right thing, but the right thing made others around you uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that they suggest that maybe the right thing was wrong? Maybe? Generally, if we're in a group that feels wronged, um, and you, we welcome the person back that we feel like betrayed us by saying, well, welcome back, but you have a lot of explaining to do. This weekend, as we look into Acts 11, I, we're going to explore uh, Peter's run-in with the apostles when he set out the mission set in front of him by the Holy Spirit. Um, a, spir a mission that it seems even the holiest people met with skepticism and a little bit of disdain. I believe last week you guys explored Acts 10. So this will be, sound a little familiar. But beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the apostles and believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? So we're going to press pause here for a moment and unpack. First of all, we need to know that it is incredibly impressive that the apostles in Judea had heard the news that Gentiles had accepted the word of God. That not only shows us the speed in which news traveled, but it also indicates that because of the speed it traveled, maybe there was something wrong. Maybe. Maybe it had become something of a, quote, topic of discussion, as we like to call it in church, or basically everyone was gossiping about it because it ticked people off so badly. <laughs> Either way, it doesn't take long in this section for the opposition to what happened to reveal itself. It's interesting that the opposition in this does not come from a Jew on the outside. You know, it could be easy for a, a good Jewish man to say, look at those Christians. They're adding to the list of things that they're doing wrong. They're eating with Gentiles. That would just be insanity. The opposition instead came from the inside, from the leaders of the young church. More than this, it appears to have come from leaders in Jerusalem, including Peter's colleagues, the apostles. Reports had began to reach their ears about what Peter had done and all that had happened. And anyone that has played a good game of telephone knows, or anyone who knows how a rumor is spread, the reports were likely only fragments of what actually happened. The parts of the story that did reach the apostles in the early church were likely items of the greatest concern. 
They had heard that Gentiles had been saved and that they had received the word of God. They had heard, too, that Peter had not only gone to them, but he had actually eaten with them. They were shocked. They were amazed. They were angry. And they were waiting for Peter, so to speak, with their hands on their hips, shaking their finger, ready to scold him upon his return. I'm certain that they thought that Peter had a lot of explaining to do and had no clue how he was going to explain his way out of this major no-no. Instead, we see that Peter responds differently. His response is not defensive or out of anger, but rather one of humility, one of gentleness. Peter knew that the Holy Spirit has changed his own heart, and he trusted the Spirit to work again in the hearts of those he was speaking to. Looking ahead in verse 4, beginning in verse 4, we read, Then Peter began to explain to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And I looked at it closely. I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds in the air. I also heard a voice say to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord. But a second time, uh, the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled again into heaven. It would have been easy for Peter to be defensive and to tell the apostles and leaders of the church, I don't have to explain myself to you. But this isn't what he does. Instead, he speaks the truth of his experience and proclaims his encounter with the living God. In the chapter before, we see Peter's initial refusal of partaking in anything unclean and his reluctance to have any fellowship with Gentiles. Acts 10.28 says, we'll see. He said to them, You are well aware that this is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This serves as an important clue to the deep rift which existed between the Jews and Gentiles, a rift which had already strongly imp like impacted the church. Peter was a good Jew. He was a faithful man. We see in verse 8 where Peter refutes the word of the Lord commanding him to get up and kill and eat when he says, by no means, Lord. This affirms that he had been faithful to the Torah and he had never eaten anything considered to be profane and unclean. He played by the rules. Here he is saying, no, Lord, I've done just as you have commanded. I kept your law. Your law does not change. Peter had played by the rules set before him. And when God changed the rules, we not only see Peter's initial struggle with the change, but we see more than that, his obedience. We see that God's directions to Peter did not happen once. In fact, scripture says that it happened three times. God did not stutter. This is God affirming that this was a command and not simply a dream or some kind of imagination that, that Peter had created. As we read on, we learn more about what followed Peter's encounter with the Lord. Verse 11 writes, if we can get technology to work. At that very moment, three men sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where they were. 
The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered a man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will then give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And I, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given each, even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads us to life. It was a risky thing for Peter to accompany the Gentiles and even go into the house of a Gentile and to be their guest for several days. Peter knew that it was risky. He knew the laws and the customs. He knew what it meant to be a good Jew. And he hinged his entire reputation and potentially the reputation of the young church on this act because he believed in what the Holy Spirit had called him to do. Peter's change of heart that we see here becomes a turning point for the church in Jerusalem and its attitudes and actions towards Gentile converts. Peter could not withstand the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter recognized the importance of sensing where God is going and heading in that very same direction. Instead of trying to persuade God where to go, Peter recognized the value in obedience, in dying to himself and everything he was taught in order to fulfill the mission that the Holy Spirit laid before him, in order to pursue the other, the ones his world believed to be unfit to even keep company. It's curious to me that there was little to no initial celebration of over their conversions. That's an exciting thing. But rather there was judgment, prejudice, and resentment. We could perhaps speculate that the Jewish, the Jewish leaders of the early church had a lot of ownership over the church, and that's very valid. They had helped build it. They had helped spread the word. They had risked themselves for the sake of this church. Maybe they even assumed ownership over the gospel, as it was maybe Christ's gift only to the Jews, and it was unavailable to others. As you might have guessed, traditionally Gentiles were not well thought of, and that made it easy to exclude them. Jews and Jewish converts to Christianity maintained this prejudice by using Old Testament laws concerning clean and unclean to justify the distance from, their, from the Gentile neighbors and those they considered unclean. In this instance, prejudice was practiced in the name of purity, just as prejudice always finds some form of a scapegoat. Scripture tells us, however, that those who hear the word of the Lord and who believe in the Lord are cleansed by the Holy Spirit and made clean. Regardless of their background, the power of the Holy Spirit can make anyone clean. God has no preference or prejudice. God is pursuing humankind. God will work through those who are willing. The Jewish Christians had been taught that the Israelites were God's chosen people, and they are that they are God's chosen people, and there's no disputing that. But by accepting Gentiles as part of their Jewish faith, they were admitting that they were all co-heirs with Christ, that the narrative was changing. They were all equal. 
for any human, that would be incredibly difficult to lay down ourselves and saying, I am no better than you, even though I've been taught my entire life that I am above you. But as we look towards the end of this encounter, we notice that the Jewish Christians fall silent. They recognize the work that had been done by the Holy Spirit. And their hearts were soft enough to be guided by God. They were obedient to God changing the rules. We are reminded that the Holy Spirit can make anyone new again, and that anyone means anyone. If we allow ourselves to be open to what God is doing, we may be surprised by what or who God is making new. We don't get to choose who the Holy Spirit ministers to. We just get to choose whether or not we're going to be obedient. If we lay ourselves down and our own convictions down and trust what God is doing, we'll be part. It's a glorious thing when God's people allow their prejudices and traditions to be overcome by God's truth and by committing themselves to doing God's mission. I believe that humans have a bad habit of giving God boundaries to work. God, you can be present here, but not there. You can work in this person or within these people, but not with those. You can go outside, you can't go outside this line or outside of this steeple, God. You can't go there. But if we take time to look within ourselves, we might see that we are either consciously or unconsciously telling God what God can do, rather than allowing ourselves to see what God wants to do. And if we do that, we're going to miss out. I know it's not as easy as it sounds. It's not being oversimplified. But being obedient to the Holy Spirit isn't always simple or easy. But nevertheless, scripture and lived experience remind us that it is possible. Peter's courage is inspiring. He gives us an example of what it looks like to recognize that everything you have been taught, all of your prejudices, opinions, preconceived notions, they can all be overthrown. Peter, if only for a moment, shows us how difficult it can be to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. But it's not the struggle that we remember. It is the obedience. We have no right to withhold God from people we don't deem worthy. We do not own God. God is not ours to patrol. We belong to God, and we believe that God is in the business of redeeming people. God is in the business of redeeming anyone. As we go this week, I encourage you to think about everything that I've just talked, uh, talked about. Um, I encourage you to think about how you may struggle with the work of the Holy Spirit. How you might say, oh no, not them, Lord. About places you might say, oh no, not there, Lord. The people, the places, the spaces we say that God cannot possibly exist there are most often the places that the Holy Spirit is leading. That is the very person, item, place that God is pursuing because they are in need of Christ. They are in need of a relationship with God. So let us be open to the Spirit and willing to say, yes, Lord, when God changes the rules on us. And may we not be our own biggest challenge in the work of the Spirit. May we not be our own hindrance. Today we have the awesome opportunity to come together and take communion. It's the first Sunday we do this every month. But I think this is really special because while we might not still have Jews and Gentiles in a formal American Christian sense, we still have people in society that we marginalize. We still have people that we say, not them, Lord. 
And so today, as we come together and as we partake in the elements, we are signifying the unity that the Holy Spirit is calling us to. We are sitting at the table of Christ and saying, all are welcome at the table. Anyone, everyone.